Amen. Good morning, Mission. Uh, I'm extremely glad that you have come to gather with us this morning. And I, I don't say this flippantly. Uh, this is always the, my favorite part of the week. I'm not just saying that to make y'all feel better. Um, this really is the f- favorite thing I do each week, gathering with you guys. But this week, it seems like I needed it even more. Um, as we've already discussed this morning, um, not only did Pastor Eric steal my shirt idea, he stole the words <laughs> I have on my paper right here about this week's events. Um, but it affected me more this week watching the news than other things that have happened in our nation. Um, I was deeply saddened. I was, still am. Uh, I am deeply heartbroken. And I know that a lot of you feel the exact same way. Um, but I pray as we have already prayed this morning, that we can all look at this through the lens of the gospel, through the fact that as bad as this week was, it is no more of an injustice than what happened to Jesus on the cross. And yet that cross was used, even though it was an injustice, to bring hope and freedom and encouragement to the world. So as we look at the injustice that is happening, yes, we can be sad. Yes, we can be angry. But let us be angry at sin so that we will stand with Jesus in these times so that we will stand and look different than the world that doesn't mean you don't post on social media because that's fine because the world does that so we should do that differently than the world but don't let it stop there let us live this out let us do the things practically speaking in our lives that show that the gospel is true to us that the gospel should be true to everyone and that they should believe the same gospel that we believe So, there's much more to be said about that that we will not get into. Um, If you do need to talk about it, though, if you want the perspective of the pastors of this church, please feel free to talk to us after today. Call us, email us, text us, whatever you want to do. We are willing to talk about it. It's just time and place. Uh, And and we don't want to be dictated by the world. We want to dictate what... um, We want God's Word to dictate what we preach and teach on Sunday morning. So... All of that to say, uh, we will be continuing through Matthew chapter 7 today. If you want to turn there, it's verses 21 through 23. Uh, If you feel like it's a little somber after talking about the events of this week, don't look to these verses for the pick-me-up because these verses are tough. Um, Yeah, they are are very tough. Uh, Eric and I have joked for years now. After hearing a sermon together, I don't know if we were at a conference or something, we heard a sermon kind of that referenced this, and we were like, that's the scariest thing that is ever in the Word of God. And we've joked about it, and we believe in the sovereignty of God here, firmly. But I'm starting to believe in the sovereignty of Eric when I have to preach this verse. Uh, I think he likes watching me squirm. He's got some kind of sick enjoyment out of this. Um, And that's fine, I guess, because here we are. But turn with me, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, This is one of those sections of Scripture that um, I didn't find a lot of sermons to listen to this week. I searched, and there were some. I'm not saying everyone has avoided this Scripture, but it's not as prevalent as John 3.16. I can find all kinds of sermons on that. So it was tough preparing. Uh, The commentaries that Eric and I kind of exchanged that we use didn't have as much on this. I, I was very surprised. I thought there would be tons of material, but... Uh, I, I don't know if maybe they're even scared to talk about it, uh, but it, it was tough preparing, and I never, ever, ever take preaching lightly, uh, and I hope that I never do. I pray that 
The angst that I feel on Saturday nights before and Sunday mornings before never goes away. But I, I very much do not take preaching this passage lightly today. However, the beauty of all of this scripture is that while it is scary, I stand by that. Even after studying it, I still say that. It is troubling in some ways. This passage offers tremendous amounts of hope and encouragement and freedom to us if we will look at it in the right perspective, if we will view it and examine ourselves the right way and look at it for what it is saying and not just the initial thoughts that we may have when we read it. So this morning, uh, if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word this morning out of reverence for God's Word. It is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning turning myself, my words, everything about me over to you this morning so that I will speak only your words. I pray that you would move me aside so that you may speak this morning, that you would use me simply as a filter, as a mouthpiece to, to get your words out to everyone in this room, including myself. I thank you for passages of Scripture like this, even though they are tough. I thank you that you as Lord, are willing to say the tough things, giving us an example that we can be bold in saying things that may be tough. I just pray that as we go through this this morning, that while it may be troubling, while it may be a little scary to read these words, to hear these words, to study these words, that at the end of the day, we would leave here with much hope and much encouragement in you. I thank you for this time. I pray for the hearers of this message. I pray that you would open their hearts, open their minds, and open their ears to hear what you have to say. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So right off the bat, there is no way around it. These words are a bit harsh. They're a, they're a bit abrasive. We read them and we go, whoa, whoa. I thought you have said in other parts of Scripture that we... We confess that you are Lord, and that's what it takes. They're, they're a little almost chilling to hear. And honestly, if, if anyone else had said them, I might not believe them. If they weren't sovereignly chosen by God to be in his infallible word, it's clearly in there. If they were just uttered by some guy today, I might go, no, that's not right. Because the Bible tells me differently. And yet, Jesus said them. They are in God's Word, therefore we should not and cannot ignore the fact that they are in there. They are not only in Matthew, they are in Luke, so it's not just one guy's perspective. They, they're worded a little differently, but basically the exact same message is in the Gospel of Luke as well. And now we move from a couple of warnings we've seen in the past couple of weeks to this warning. So we have discussed some hard truths the last few weeks. They've not been super easy to take. We didn't leave here with the happy feeling that we do sometimes with Scripture. But some of the truths were difficult. 
But the reason for that is Jesus wants to be overly thorough in matters of salvation. He does not want to warn us once and hope we get it. He is going to warn us from different angles differently so that we can see from all levels how life and death this really is. This is as life and death as it gets. In a week filled with life and death, this is as life and death as we can get. And he's not willing to offer a single warning hoping that we understand and that we get it, but he is going to offer multiple ones. We saw a warning a few weeks ago about following the wrong path, right? Being on the wide path, thinking we're on the narrow. We were encouraged to make sure we are on the narrow path, make sure we entered through the narrow gate, which is Jesus. He's the only way, the only gate. Then we saw a warning last week as we walked through how false prophets are going to convince us of things that aren't true, that we might follow their words, follow their actions, follow their words of wisdom as we may think that they are at the time, and we may have false assurance because of what they have said. And then this week, we are warned about deceiving ourselves, about thinking that we have assurance when we really do not. And that's where it gets scary. Because a lot of times we can judge other people's words and be like, nope, not right. I, I don't. We're very judgmental in, the, in a good way of other people's words. But when we are convinced of something in our own head, it becomes very dangerous and very difficult to convince us otherwise. We like to stick to our guns no matter what it is. Whether it's opinion, whether it's fact, we don't really care. We want to stick to it, and it's hard to convince us otherwise. This is why we have said many times it is harder to evangelize to someone who believes they are a Christian than to someone who just outright says, I'm an atheist. They'll listen to you. They may not agree at the end of the day, but they will listen. The other person will nod along and agree and say, yeah, I believe all of those things when maybe they don't. But they are convinced of something, and they don't want to change. And we are the same way. Now this passage is hotly debated and it has been for a very long time. It is used by both sides of a specific argument to prove their point, which I know is kind of funny. But they, they tend to split it in half. One side uses one half of it, one side uses the other half, and they say, see, told you. And what I would contend to you, what we have always contended to you here at Mission Church, is that we should view any and all Scripture in view of all Scripture. This is one singular story here about one man, about Jesus, and about how he came and how he lived and died. Everything points either forward to him, tells the story of him in the present, or points backward to him. It is all about Jesus. It is one story. So we should take this as a whole. We should view it all. What does all of Scripture say in light of what we have just read here in Matthew? So we will look at other Scriptures today. But even more so, we need to view this passage as a whole. These three verses do not need to be isolated from one another. Now, we will look through how this debate plays out, and we will break it apart and then put it back together by the end of this so that we know what this says, but also what it says in light of all of Scripture. Now, the debate I'm referring to is the faith versus works debate. How are we saved? Is it by faith alone? Is it by works alone? Or is it by some combination of the two? See, what happens is works people will look at verse 21 by itself. They say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
and they cut it off right there. And the same people do this with the husband or wives submit to their husband's verse. They don't read the rest of what that says. So guys, if you do that, just read the rest because it gets harsh on us afterward. It is not all about submittance. But this is what people do. They read one, one verse and then they ignore what comes after it. And that's what these works people are doing. They stop right there and they say, see, these people are confessing Jesus as Lord. They believe and Jesus tells them there's something more to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And works people are like, told you. And here's the thing. If that's all that verse said, maybe it could be argued that that's what it said. If, if that's all that was in there, 22 and 23 weren't there afterward, I could see their argument. Because these people are not just saying Lord with a small L. That can be interchangeable for rabbi, teacher, person of authority, the emperor, any, wives call their husbands Lord in Scripture a lot with, with the small L at the beginning. It's just a word of respect. I'm not suggesting anyone in this room do that. Um, I know some of you ladies, and you would never do that. Uh, but, but they are not saying Lord. They are saying Lord, Lord. First of all, you need to notice that it is capitalized which is not just arbitrary. These, the people that translated the Bible way back when did not just go, hey, let's just capitalize these two and leave the, some of the other ones non-capitalized. No, they looked at the context of what is being say, said here and it needs to be capitalized. It is a even though it's the same word, it is, many times in the Greek, a small little just tittle, as they call them, changes the whole meaning, and that's what has happened here. They have viewed this, translated it, and understand that it needs to be capitalized. But also, in the original Greek, if you double a word like this, that changes everything. They're not saying Lord, as in someone who has authority over me. They are saying Lord, Lord. They are saying Lord of Lords. You are the Son of God. You are Lord. We are in, they are, in fact, confessing the truth about Jesus. Notice it does not say anywhere in these scriptures that they are just false professing Jesus as Lord. Jesus does not rebuke them for their profession. He rebukes them for what they are really saying in their profession and what the rest of the verses say. Again, we have to take these as a whole. But they are saying that Jesus' identity is the Son of God. John Stott puts it this way. Some of these words are a little dated, so just bear with me. It says, first, this profession is polite. They address Christ as Lord. Secondly, the confession is orthodox. The context with its allusions to God as Christ's Father leave no room for debate. Third, the confession is fervent. Lord, Lord is a title of enthusiasm and zeal. And fourth, the confession is public, not private. Even the works that they performed in His name were public. This is a model confession. It would be wonderful if we all would make confessions such as these. I would agree with John Stott here. It would be awesome if we all confessed this truth this morning. So if that is the case, then why are these people left out of the kingdom? Are the works people right? Do we have to supplement our faith by doing something to make our faith real? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Think of it this way. I know someone in here maybe more than one, but I know a specific one that is deathly afraid of heights. They hate flying. It's Pastor Eric, so we can all call him out about it. They hate to fly. Now, he will do it. I've seen him do it. It's actually kind of funny. 
He takes about 12 Xanax, I think. I don't know what he takes. He takes something to calm his nerves. And then he sits like this the whole time. Out, gripping the seat. And don't even get me started about turbulence. It's actually quite funny. Um, but, however, if you asked Eric, hey, do parachutes work? He would say, yeah. I've seen them work. I've seen videos of them work. I know people that have skydived and live to tell about it. There are people in this room, including myself, who have jumped out of a plane with a grown man strapped to his back and a parachute strapped to him. Don't really know, looking back and saying it that way, I don't really know why I did it. But anyway, it was awesome. But I live to tell about it. I'm here right here. So Eric would say, yes, parachutes work. I believe in parachutes. Invite him to go skydiving after church, see what happens. Because he will resoundingly say, nope, not going. You see, he believes in parachutes enough to say, sure, they work. He does not believe in them enough to jump out of an airplane. So with this type of belief in Jesus, these men thought that they needed to supplement their faith. They thought they needed separate accomplishments outside of Lord, Lord. The problem with that train of thought is that works-based salvation is denounced in the two following verses. So we, if we stop at verse 21, sure, it might say that. But we cannot say that that's what it says when we look at the next verses. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did many mighty, quote, works. That's what it says. They did many mighty works. Both views here are denounced. You can't, you can't do a faith versus works here because you would have to split the scriptures to get it to say what you want it to say. Taken as a whole, there is clearly room for both. So what is the deal? Because at this point, you're thinking, man, this kind of seems hopeless. They confessed. They did stuff. What more is there? What can we do? Now, as I said before, we are going to preach this passage in light of all of Scripture. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Seems pretty straightforward, right? We confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which Jesus was obviously still alive at this point in Matthew, so they couldn't really believe that, but they later on. But anyway, but if we confess Jesus is Lord, we believe he is raised from the dead, boom. It even tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that we cannot full, truthfully say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit leading us to do so and empowering us to do so. So we can't even say, Lord, Lord, truthfully and honestly, unless the Holy Spirit is within us to make us say it. So in light of that scripture, we know that there is no possible way to enter the kingdom of heaven without saying, Lord, Lord. So the first step is clearly we do have to make this confession. So Please hear me, I'm not telling you we don't need to say Lord, Lord just because these guys didn't get in. We have to start at that point. It tells us in Romans, we must confess Jesus is Lord. No one who fails or refuses to do that will even be considered for the rest of anything. They will absolutely be told you cannot come in if they do not confess that Jesus is Lord. If they do not have a right belief of who Jesus is. The problem with having just a right belief of who Jesus is is that James 2.19 tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. 
It's kind of almost a sarcastic, great job, pat you on the back, whatever. So do the demons. Even the demons believe and shudder. We see here that even the demons believe who Jesus is. They know he is the Son of God. They know that he is Lord, Lord. They're, they're fearful of Jesus. We see numerous accounts through Scripture where they literally cannot disobey Jesus. He tells them to do something they don't even want to do, and yet they do it. They must obey. They believe in who he is, and they shudder. They obey him, and yet they are not saved. So it can't just be a right understanding of who Jesus is and what his identity is that saves us. But, based on all of Scripture, based on Romans and many other places in Scripture, step one is most definitely confessing, Lord, Lord. Jesus is Lord. But verse 21 blatantly shows us that is not the only criteria. It is not just intellectually assenting that Jesus is the Lord of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. There is more to it. Because it clearly states here that not everyone who says that is ushered into the kingdom. That's the scary part. Because we think, but that's what I say. I, I confess that Jesus is Lord. Does that mean I will be left out? Well, James 2, 17 and 18, which are the verses just before the one we just read about the demons, says, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, works-based theologians will use these verses, especially pair them together, and say, see, faith is not enough. You cannot be saved by faith alone. You must do works. So comes the question of where do works come in? Hopefully see that we can, it cannot be only works based on Romans, right? It cannot be that we just work our way to heaven. We, we do have to have faith. So we've settled that. Faith is step one. Where do works come in? Is this what Jesus was getting at when he said that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom? Was he saying just work harder? Just do better. Try harder. You see all that stuff you've been doing? Don't do that anymore. You see the stuff you haven't been doing? Do some more of that. And then I'll be pleased with you. I will let you in. The Bible says that our good deeds are like filthy rags. Is Jesus just asking for more filthy rags? Because maybe he is. The works people would like to make you think that. So according to Scripture, taken as a whole, we see that workless faith is dead. So how do we have a live faith? Is that where works come in? Do works make my faith real? Do work, works make my faith enough? Do works make my faith alive instead of dead now for this answer we can look just over the previous chapters Jesus has instructed us on many things right he's told us things to do he's told us things not to do he's told us how to properly do and not do those things so it's not just the action of doing them but it's our heart and our intentions in it so in light of even the previous verses from last week it tells us we will know a tree by its fruit how do we know if a tree is alive fruit it produces fruit but does the fruit actually make the tree alive if I have a dying apple tree out here and I go I don't know how they do this but they graft things together and I graft a thousand apples onto it is that though are those apples gonna make that tree come back to life no it absolutely would not it would not make the tree alive 
we know that a tree is alive by it producing fruit. It is not the other way around. The fruit does not make the tree live. The fruits are simply markers and indicators that the tree is, in fact, living. This is where works come into our faith. We see that saving faith is never alone. Works accompany real, true, alive faith. Works are never what make our faith alive, but they simply show us if our faith is alive. Because if it is, it will produce works. This is why James can write that faith without works is dead. Not because if we don't produce enough works, we aren't good enough for salvation. But if we are truly faithful and we have a real, alive faith, we will produce good fruit, namely in the form of works. Faith without works is a dead faith because it is clearly not alive enough to produce these good works. But it indicates that we have the faith to enter the kingdom when these works accompany our faith. It is simply the next marker of who enters the kingdom. So we've got faith. Works play a role, but we have to understand their proper role. It is not to supplement our faith. It is just to show that our faith is, in fact, real. But Pastor Justin, you say, these guys were doing that. They did both. We see here that these people Jesus is referring to had both of these. They professed properly, as we've already discussed. Jesus is Lord. Your identity is the Son of God. You are who you say you are. And they performed works in Jesus' name even. And notice Jesus does not deny that they did those things. He doesn't deny that they are properly professing. He does not deny that they did the works in, in his name. He doesn't say, no, you didn't. He just tells them that these things aren't good enough. So what gives? There must be a third criteria in here, right? There must be a third something in this equation. So what, who does Jesus say will get in? The ones who do his Father's will. So now we have faith, we have works, we have obedience. I think we have, this is the first slide. I just want to make sure without making you turn, I would like to make you turn your Bibles and all of those things, but we want to make sure we see this. So let's see what Scripture has to say as a whole. Hebrews 12, 14. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will ever see the Lord. There are no loopholes to this. There are no exceptions to this. There are not, well, you're kind of holy, because there is no such thing as kind of holy. You either are or you are not. You are either set apart and unique and different like Jesus and God are, or you're not. But we see here, that we will not see the Lord without true abiding holiness. Now the, the next slide is 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. 14 through 16, I'm sorry. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What is the third criteria here? is holiness. And this is not some arbitrary holier-than-thou holiness. Well, I'm better than that guy or that girl. This is real holiness. It is such real holiness that it is compared to the holiness of Almighty God. So it's not just holy. It is true holiness, that you must be truly holy to enter the kingdom 
of heaven. I was talking to a guy this week who says he's a Christian, and we were talking about some of his behavior that was less than Christian. And while he would acknowledge that his behavior was not consistent with Christianity or what he claims to believe or even just right behavior, morally speaking, he agreed that was unacceptable, acknowledged that he was in the wrong, and yet he would continually say, but I don't do this. What about those guys that are doing that? I don't even do that. He was simply comparing his behavior to someone else's behavior that he deemed worse than his. Now, first of all, that is a subjective thing because some people would say his behavior was worse than the guy he was comparing himself to, and other people would say, no, his is worse. And then we're just in a battle of opinions again. And what did we just say about opinions? Nobody wants to change theirs. <laughs> Neither did he, but that's beside the point. This is why we are told to be holy as God is holy. There is no subjectiveness to that. Are we better than God? Well, <laughs> let's be honest. All of us would hopefully admit that's not even a close call. So there's no subjectiveness as to who is actually better. There's no way we can feel superior in any way. There's no way we can go, well, I'm holier than God because God does this or this. That is why we are compared here to be holy as God is holy. No subjectiveness whatsoever. So the criteria here are growing, right? We must confess that Jesus is Lord. We've seen that throughout all of Scripture. Check. Hopefully everybody in here would go, yep, done that. Then we see that works do come in. Now, again, we have to properly view that. That is our faith producing those works, not the other way around. Not our works supplementing our faith. It's just proving that our faith is real. And most of us can probably raise our hand and say, you know what, sometimes I've, I've done some works. That, you know, I've got some things on my resume. And then we see holiness. And that's where we all go, hmm, maybe I won't raise my hand on that one. And this is where it gets truly tricky. This is where we start to think that our faith does produce works to prove that it is legit. But then we start thinking we have to do enough works to make sure those works make us holy. We view the works not to produce our faith. We've seen that. Our faith starts all of this. But we start to think that the only way to be considered holy is to do enough good works. We have to earn that part. Yeah, faith is given. Cool. I'm cool with that. Works are a part of that. I get it. That just produces it. So how do I get this holiness? I just got to work harder. I think that's what a lot of people would say, maybe even in this room. And we start believing the lie that we can be good enough. And that's what these guys were doing in Scripture. Look what I'm doing, Jesus. I must be faithful. I must be holy. You've got to let me in. How dare you say that I can't come in when I believe in you and who you are and I've done all this stuff. What else can I do? My hands are tied here. Why are we not in? We don't see the conversation if it goes any farther because when Jesus says depart, I'm assuming they just departed. But we, we have to assume that they're thinking everything about this seems to imply they're surprised. But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus. So they're not like, oh, okay, I get it. I thought I was in. I'm not. Cool. They're very surprised by this. And we see this list. We see, got to have faith. Faith produces works. Got to be holy. And we start taking stock of our lives, right? We start looking at ourselves. Well, 
well, I do this, but I don't do this. Then we start making kind of, like I said, a resume. And, and that's not always bad if we do that properly. Second Peter 1.10 says that we should be more diligent to make our calling and election sure. So we always need to be examining ourselves to make sure that we are following the narrow path, that we are following Jesus. But we have to view that properly and in the proper context. So this is where we start to self justify we start to do what these guys did and list off all the good we have done and we may not even ignore all the bad we have done but we just start listing the good stuff but this but this but this you see they meant it when they said lord lord they believed in who jesus was they truly believed that jesus was the son of god they had right belief in his identity and also by the fact that they were calling him lord they were saying that he is worthy of being obeyed we did these things because of who you are we're not just doing them arbitrarily. We're doing them in your name because we believe who you are, Jesus. We believe in your identity. Therefore, we did these things. Surely that's good enough. The problem is, is they did not believe in him for salvation. They did not believe in him for justification. They did not believe that he alone was enough. They didn't believe in him enough to jump out of the airplane. They would say, yes, I believe in him, but I'm not doing that. I'm not pulling all of my trust into him. They believed that because he was worthy to be obeyed, that if they obeyed him well enough, that they would be self-justified, that my works would supplement what I do believe. The problem with that way of thinking is that in God's economy, there is no such thing as self-justification. There is not enough we can do but we do this too. We look at these guys and we're like, idiots. But then we look at our own lives and realize that while we don't ignore that we have done sin and done bad, we always just seem to accentuate the good, right? I'm not going to list off all the bad things I did this week, but I, if you want to talk about all the good stuff I did, let's have a talk. Come see me after. I'll list them for you. We all do this. This is why misunderstanding this passage can be so dangerous. Because at first reading, we just go, man, there, I, there's no way I'm getting in. I haven't done any of these things. Now, today, in today's time, it may not look like what they're saying. We may not say, but did I not prophesy? Did I, I've, I can go ahead and tell y'all, I've never casted out a demon. I've seen some people that I thought needed a demon cast out of them, but I didn't do it. I didn't do many mighty works in Jesus' name. So, but in today's time, it might look a little different. It might look, Lord, Lord, did we not stand up for social justice? Did we not fight racism and racial equality? Did we not sign that petition that was trying to outlaw abortion? But Lord, Lord, did we not raise money for our local schools and very involved in our children's lives and donate money to a food bank in your name, Jesus, for you, Jesus? Did we not post tweets about you and make our Facebook statuses scripture in your name, Jesus, for you, Jesus? Did we not adopt kids and foster kids and serve in kids' ministry and move to India and raise our kids in Sunday school? Jesus, we never missed a Sunday. We were there every single week, Jesus, for you. In Jesus' name, I did these things. Did I not preach as fervently as possible as I could on Sunday mornings? Did I not lead 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 people to you, Jesus? I baptized them, Jesus. Is that not good enough for you? Why are you telling me that I can't get in? Of course I'm on the right path. Look at all this stuff I'm doing. Any of that sound familiar? You can fill in some of those blanks with the, the own things, your own things that you may use to justify yourself. 
but I want to I be as blunt as I can here. There are going to be people that have done far greater things than this that are going to split the gates of hell wide open. And they're going to be surprised as to how they got there. And they're going to look at Jesus and say, but Jesus, I did all this. Why is this not good enough for you? They're even going to recruit people to go with them. We saw last week in Matthew 24 that a lot of false Christs and false prophets are going to rise up and lead people astray. They are going to convince people that they are on the narrow path when they're really on the wide path. And they are going to have a right belief in Jesus as the Son of God. They are going to be even more obedient than we are. They are going to be more Christian than we are. They're going to pray more than we do. They are going to do more works than we perform. They are going to have better evangelical results than we have. They are going to lead more people to Christ. They are going to baptize more people than we baptize. And they are going to go to hell. Because the problem with that belief is that is their means of justification. They are thinking that those things prophesying, casting out demons, fill in the blank from today's time and today's culture is what justifies them when the Bible clearly tells us that it is Jesus who justifies us. So how do we keep ourselves from being one of those people? How do we keep ourselves from deceiving ourselves? Because if you're like me at this point, you begin asking yourself, what is good enough? Have I done enough? I can't even say all of those things. Have, have I done enough, Jesus? When do I get my holiness merit badge? When do you give me the okay to come into your kingdom? And I want to stand in front of you today and boldly proclaim and to tell you so that Mission Church will never be held accountable for not telling you the truth. You don't. You never earn this. You don't get that merit badge. You do not earn holiness. You do not do enough to make yourself holy in God's eyes. There is no enough. There is no amount of good works that can save you. There is no amount of holiness you can achieve. There is no orthodoxy that is sufficient for your salvation. Well, my granddad was a pastor. Don't care. I was a pastor. Don't care. There is no enough. There is not enough that you personally can do. Nothing. No results. No statistics are going to save you. No giving to the needy. No proper prayer, no amount of prayer, nothing. None of these things are ever going to be good enough. That is not to say don't do them. It is to say, why are we doing them? So again, I ask, what does all of Scripture have to say about this? So next slide is the same verses we just looked at. But let's see what else they say, because... Remember, isolating verses is dangerous. So Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But read on. Verse 15. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See what happens when we isolate verses? Verse 14 says we've got to be holy. Uh-oh. How do I do that? I've got to get there. Verse 15 tells us how to become holy. We must all receive the grace of God. But why? Because without the grace of God, we cannot be holy. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot do enough to be holy on our own. And if it were only a matter of being holy enough on our own, then why would this be in here that it's so important that no one, not one person, fails to receive the grace of God? 
The reason for that is because without the grace of God, it does not matter how holy we are because we will never get there on our own. That is why it is incumbent that no one fail to obtain the grace of God. The next verse we looked at was 1 Peter, first 14 through 16. But what does it say right before that? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, not partially, not on God's grace and something else with it. The grace of God must be what we set our hope fully on because it is by that grace that we can be holy. It is by that grace that we can be obedient. It is by that grace that we can perform works. And it is by that grace that we even have the faith to start with to say, Lord, Lord. It is fully, again, not some grace and some something else. It is fully by that grace that we can obtain any of the criteria that we have listed here today where Jesus will not say, depart from me, I never knew you. It is by his grace. We must believe in Jesus as the bringer and the supplier of that grace or else will we be just as these men and surprised on the day of judgment that we didn't make the cut because we're not going to make the cut. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Actually, I don't hate. I like being the bearer of bad news in here. None of us in here are going to make the cut. It tells us the ones who will get in are the ones who do the will of the Father. Who or what is his will? It has been the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We've gone over this so many times. It is not what you do, it is why you do it. Heart matters. Your heart behind what you do matters. You can do a thousand good deeds and I can do one. If my heart's in the right place, I've done more good for the kingdom of God than your thousand good deeds done for yourself. It is that heart and intentions matter. God does not want our sacrifices for sacrifice's sake. He does not want our obedience for obedience's sake. He does not want our works for works sake. He does not want us to exchange our fruit for his holiness. That is not how the economy works. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives. He wants our everything simply because he is Lord, Lord. That is why we do things. That is why we preach. That is why we teach. That is why we disciple. That is why we share the gospel. That is why we donate food to a food bank. That is why we do get involved in our children's schools. That is why we sign petitions or protest or, or stand up for racial inequality or pray like we did this morning. That is why we do these things. It is not so God will look at us and go, way to go. That was impressive. I, didn't, I thought you were going to give $100 and you gave $200. Man, you went above it, it is so that we can show that Jesus is Lord, Lord to us and that he should be Lord, Lord to everyone. And we can continually point back to him that he is not only the Lord worthy to be obeyed, but he is the Lord of the salvation of our souls. So the question is not have I given enough to the poor, but have I been poor enough in spirit? The question is not do I feel hungry do I feed the hungry, but do I feel hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake? Not am I happy and content in my salvation, but will I be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? These are the things only the grace of God can do through Jesus Christ in your life. These works cannot be conjured up on our own. So do not allow yourselves to be deceived. If we base what we have seen here today on all of Scripture, we clearly see the question is never, 
Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Because the answer to that is clearly a resounding no. You have never done enough, nor will you ever do enough. The question is, is Christ good enough? Has Christ done enough? And praise be to God that that answer is and always will be yes. He has done enough. He is good enough. He is sufficient enough. This makes it clear that our relationship with Jesus is never based on what we do for him, but that he has done everything for us. It is his grace that has instilled this faith. It is his grace that causes that faith to produce works. And it is his grace that allows our unrighteousness to be exchanged for his holiness. So when we stand in front of our eternal judge and he asks us why we should be allowed in, I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. I'm just saying if. If he looks at us and says, why should I let you in? We should all stand back, biggest smile on our faces we can, and say, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I don't deserve to come in there. But Jesus has given me faith. His grace, your grace, God, has given me faith. His works have been credited to my account. Not my works, they're out. His works have been credited to my account. And His holiness is now mine based solely on the grace of an almighty God. So should you let me in? No, but you told me that Jesus was good enough to let me in. So I plead his blood on my behalf. The message of all of Scripture is that you and I will never be holy on our own. We will never be good enough on our own. Our works will never add up on their own. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to be good enough on our own. The beauty of the gospel is that all God requires... Jesus provides. That is why this verse, these verses are filled with hope. That is why we can find encouragement in these verses. Because we can trust in Jesus fully for our salvation. Because the message of all of Scripture is that Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus will always be enough. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning pleading the blood of Christ on our behalf because we look at our lives and even the good stuff is terrible. Even the good stuff, your, your word tells us, is of filthy rags in your economy. And yet, based on your grace and your grace alone, you have credited Jesus' works to our account. You have credited Jesus' holiness to our account. And we cannot praise you loud enough or fervently enough this morning to express our gratitude. So may our lives do that. May our lives go, we may go from this place and live our lives in a way that shows the world that you are enough. May we stand for all of these things. May we stand for what is right and stand against what is wrong. May we do good in quote unquote the sight of the world, but may we do all of that for you because you are Lord, Lord. May we do all of that so that you will be glorified and not ourselves. May we do all of that with the right heart and the right intention that only you can give us, God. I pray we go from this place and we speak boldly into a culture that badly needs you, Jesus. That needs to see people living the gospel, looking different than culture, saying things differently than culture. 
But when they notice that we are different, when they make fun of us because we are different, may we point them to you, Jesus. May we say, I wouldn't be doing any of this if it were not for the grace of God in my life who has changed me, transformed my heart, and given me new desires to follow after him, to follow the narrow path, to stay off of the wide path, and to follow Jesus no matter the cost. And may we plead with those people that they would follow us as we follow Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for being enough. Thank you that we don't have to supplement our faith in the salvation you provide with works and with stuff that we can't do anyway. That would make this impossible, and yet what you have done makes this very possible to enter the kingdom of heaven because of what you have done, Jesus. And I just pray that anyone in here that does not believe in you for their salvation would turn to you, would confess to you that they have been living for themselves and that they would repent and turn and follow you the way you have called us to throughout all of Scripture. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.